Hello, friends, and welcome to Backstory. I'm your host, Alex Roberts. My guest today is Lucian Khan, a game designer whose work always has a weighty sense of magic to it, and is also usually filled with incredibly dorky puns. So whether you're excited about Same Bat Time, Same Bat Mitzvah, If I Were a Lich Man, or the upcoming Visigoths versus Mulgoths, I think you're going to get a kick out of this episode. You know what it reminds me of? Okay, so when when I was a kid in the 90s, there was this terrible dominoes game that just like came with my computer. And if you played against the the AI, there were these like different characters you could play dominoes against. Um, and one of the characters was, was named Crazy Tom. And it was this very like like early 90s sort of like we have a wacky character right and and he was like um he would just like weirdly quote like do little sound bites of things as as he was playing dominoes um and at one point he says um he says sex and drugs and rock and roll it brought communism down what <laughs> And that's that's the first thing I thought about when I saw the extremely '90s cheesoid um, <laughs> cover art for Torg the Cyber Papacy. It's so good. They have like they have like the Pope hat, but it's like circuit board looking. It's like yeah, yes. definitely, yes, yes. I kind of I kind of want a poster of that like above my bed. It's so hideous and amazing. It's so choice, and it really it combines. It, it, it combines two marvelous aesthetics, which is like role-playing games from the early 90s that I have never played, and yet it just culturally by osmosis feel like I know and I'm very fond of. Like, I've never played Torg. I'm never going to play Torg. It's just never going to happen in, in my life. But like, I love that look. Or like like stuff from old Rifts books and stuff like that. I'm like, yeah, show me this gun arm, man. I kind of want to play Torg. Like, I want to play the cyber papacy setting but like with a completely different set of mechanics, like just port it over to something else Um, because the setting is phenomenal. There are cyber nuns, there are cyber cathars. It's just like really (laughs) super strange. (laughs) (laughs) That is so fun. Yeah. Yeah. Cause it's like nineties RPGs plus Catholicism, which is also a very strong aesthetic. Very strong aesthetic. Yeah, very powerful. Yeah. I feel like, so there there are some like recurring themes in in your games and also just like stuff that I see you get really excited about online. And a religion is one of them, whether it's like kitschy Catholicism or, you know, your own Judaism or, you know, just some Aleister Crowley Western occultism type shit. So um, from 2006 to 2008, I worked on a master's degree in history of religions and um, I was 
kind of idealistic in the way that I approached my master's degree. I didn't entirely understand that like you really should narrow down and focus in on something so that like you can go on to a PhD and become a professor and like follow that track. But I just was very naive about um, academia coming out of college and sort of had my head in the clouds and instead ended up basically studying a weird smattering of different um, religious topics. So it does come up a lot um, in my games, I think just because I, I went so hardcore at it for, for two years. What kinds of things are you porting over from religious ritual into gaming ritual? I mean, you just said it right there is, is ritual. Like it's the sort of the attitude toward game mechanics and toward, toward design that is based on my understanding of um, structurally of how religious rituals work. Like, I feel like it's a huge impact on, on all of my design. Yeah. And and people really respond to it as well. Like people get excited about doing these kind of like, I don't know, how, how would you, uh, uh, there are, there are games that I could describe as like ritualistic, or I feel like I know a ritual when I see one, but when you're thinking about, okay, I'm, I'm going to have um, a ritualistic bent in this game, or I'm going to design it like a ritual what are the what are the real components that you're thinking about? Okay, so I think about I think about strategic use of repetition, um, particularly poetic use of repetition. I think about cycles and circles and um, things coming back to their starting point. Um, I think about uh, I think a lot about having. Um, a lot of my games, not all of them, but a lot of them have some kind of movement of a physical object that gets imbued with meaning, which I, I think is connected a lot to my study of ritual. What else? It's hard to even, it's it's hard to think about it um, in a certain way because it's so baked into the way I think about games that I'm not sure what I'm not seeing. Um, <laughs> you're like that's just you a know? game that's just what that is <laughs> yeah exactly like i mean a lot of the a lot of the games that i am really excited by and drawn to also have a lot of these components like um i'm you know i'm very good friends with Sharon biswas we work together and he also is really interested in ritual in his games um i'm really interested in um stephen dewey's work again uses a lot of ritual in his games i think of ara bell's work as it having a lot of ritualistic components so i'm I'm also drawn to that in the games that i like playing yeah i i think about that a lot and i think about um even games that don't don't have that as like a design goal or or like a stated design element at all i think people really want to have items of significance and and meaningful repetition and like reinforcement of certain things like when i see people at game conventions who have like not only that do they have their incredibly fancy set of dice but they have like special little dice holders that like are placed ever so care it's like hello <laughs> yeah yeah they're they're basically sacred objects totally yeah 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 i mean if you think about like a, a you know an anthropologist unearthing those you know or an archaeologist thousands of years from now, they'd be like, cool, here are some sacred objects. Like, duh. Yeah, absolutely. And it's fun, right? It's, I, I think, something that we don't talk a whole lot about um, in religious studies, but there is a little bit of discussion of it, is is just the fun component of these, like, 
poetic incantations and and repetitions and um like the the ceremony is is in fact fun right there's there's something that that brings joy about it it's not i mean even if the mood can is um solemn or you know full of awe or whatever there's like a part of you when you when you do these things that is enjoying playing with with these objects and symbols and um, incantations and, and everything. That's a really good point. I feel like religious ritual is often, I don't know, depicted as being like super serious and no one smiles and you have to have like, you know, either a scowl or like a look of sort of contented bliss on your face when that's just not really how it goes, actually. <laughs> no, no, no. And I do feel like, you know, being raised in Judaism, I I started out with some understanding of um of the fun and humorous aspects of of ritual and of you know religious observance um because it, it, it is very baked into the culture i'd really like to ask you about um i think your newest game grandma's drinking song grandma's yeah um it's not it's not it's not my newest but it is related to 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 all of this so grandma's drinking song is a game about, uh, well, it's based on the stories of my family. So my great, great grandmother was a bootlegger in the Bronx during Prohibition. Um, so she was like living in a small apartment. There were like nine relatives and a cat who was there for mice. And they were like pretty poor, but not starving. And they had a closet still where they were making alcohol and then selling it to their neighbors and sort of across um, the Bronx. And the game, um, it's a comedic game. And in it, you play uh, one of four relatives living in this in this context. You can be the grandma, who's like the head honcho of the booze running enterprise. Um, You can play one of the two granddaughters, or you can play the grandson. um, And the grandson is secretly gay. So there's like all kinds of stuff going on with all these people. And um, you get scene cards where um, you get sort of prompts of scenes that you're going to act out um, based on the actual stories of my family. So like, for example... um, there's one about like one of the daughters has secretly eloped with somebody she met at a YMCA dance and like the grandmother is angry. Right. So you play that whole out or like there's a scene where the brother pees out the window and it lands on a cop, which actually happened to my grandpa's brother. Um, so it's all really fun. And like during all of this, you, um, you are also collectively writing a drinking song. (laughs) So the, the, the drinking song, um, keeps getting longer as the game gets longer and like you keep adding parts of it and like mechanically you have to sing it at various times. And also, um, there is an onion, like a, a literal onion, like you have a physical onion (laughs) you have to get a real onion and the onion is called the onion of soliloquy (laughs) and um if so like during any scene um there's three people in the scene and one audience member of the four people and um the audience member has the power once per scene um to decide if somebody in the scene seems like they're getting very emotional 
um, the audience member hands that person the onion and that, and everything goes silent. And that person has to like give an impassioned speech about their feelings about what's happening in the scene. And then everybody sings this song. Uh, so it, it, it turns out to be really funny and is definitely, you know, obviously based on my family's stories. <laughs> Can, did, does the onion have an inherent significance or is it just imbued with significance? So here's the tie-in. So um, so at the end of your soliloquy, you have to say um, this this repeated phrase. It's actually kind of used as a ritual phrase in the game. Um, in Yiddish, it's a Yiddish phrase, um, but the English that you say um, is "May you grow with your head in the ground like an onion," um, and it's an and it's an insult. It's like an old Yiddish insult where you are like, ah, may you grow with your head in the ground like an onion. Like you should be buried head first in the ground. So it's just this like weird connection to this um, Yiddish insult. Nice. Nice. I was just going to say people are like weirdly really delighted about the onion. Like they get really excited about getting to use an onion. <laughs> it's novel. <laughs> and also like, I mean, people just respond to physical components in such a way, which we can go back to magic and talk more about that. But also like, I feel like that onion would have so much power by the end of it. Like, like imagine chopping up that onion and putting it in a soup. The soup would be full of like creative power. <laughs> exactly. It's, it's just imbued with creative potency. <laughs> Are you just gathering powerful onions for some sort of spell? Is that, is that the point of your playtesting? Yeah, okay. Yeah, this is actually just a a ruse. I don't care at all about game design. I'm just trying to gather enough powerful onions to like summon sort of some sort of Yiddish spirit. <laughs> some sort of very pungent spirit. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, um I mean, I have to wonder about magic. Cuz magic is a weird thing in game design where people come up with like magic systems and stuff, but I don't know. They always seem to assume that like magic isn't real and magic is like a fantasy thing. What is, what is your relationship to magic? I must know. Um, so very, very long and complicated, actually. I, um, I was very, very deeply into the occult in my late teens and the first half of my 20s um, and was, you know, very serious and earnest and intense to an obsessive degree about um ceremonial magic like western tradition ceremonial magic um so i was really really deep in that world and like doing daily rituals and like really studying hard at all of that stuff um and then i stopped doing it in my late 20s um because for me personally and obviously everybody's different but for me personally it really aggravated um, some of my obsessive tendencies in a, in a way that was not good for my anxiety. My relationship to magic is sort of, you know, something that I have done with great intensity, um, that I have studied extensively, um, that I still draw a lot from aesthetically and conceptually, but that I no longer practice because just the way that my my anxiety works it it's a bad match like it's a better it's a better fit for me to have an aesthetic relationship to it um and for it to go into my design <laughs> i was just thinking that i was like oh okay so you can like you can sneak it into games and then games are like we're okay that's that's the healthy dose that's the therapeutic dose yeah and 
Exactly. And I do, um, I've been waiting, nobody has actually done this yet, but I've been waiting for like some ceremonial magician or witch or somebody to come to me, especially about, um, so I have this game Dead Friend, which is in the structure of a magic ritual. um, And it is about necromancy and it does draw um, some of its symbolism and some of its techniques from actual magical traditions. Yeah, you just, just, I mean, note for the listeners, you got to use full on salt. I do. There's a literal pentagram, like, <laughs> it's very out there. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. really real stuff there. But I, I've been waiting for somebody to come to me um, and yell at me and be like, Lucian Khan, you are being irresponsible and you are going to conjure the dead for real with this game. And you know, I, 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 as a, um, as a point of, um, hopefully, um, relaxation and calm for the listeners at home who do practice magic or believe in magic or are, are interested in such things. Um, I have very specifically engineered that game and all of my games that use magic in any way to not work. (laughs) Tell me more. Let's get under the hood. Yeah. So, so the the short version is that the ritual doesn't work, and there are a few reasons why. One of them is so during the the necromancy ritual in Dead Friend, um, you do in fact um, trace your finger along this pentagram in in shapes and gestures that are according to a long tradition actually like the the real direction for certain elemental invoking pentagrams, right? You are in fact doing the right ones. Um, But there's no point in the ritual where you activate them. So like in, in an actual ritual, you would um, activate these pentagrams, like give them energy and basically turn them on by using certain divine names or um, vibrating sound toward them or making gestures toward them. You have to, you have to turn them on. Otherwise you're, you're actually just drawing a star with your finger. Right. So, (laughs) So even though it seems like perhaps you are conjuring the dead, right. Um, because this, the ritual sort of gives you, or the game gives you these feelings of um, a magic ritual with a circle and pentagrams and making these gestures. Um, if you were, in fact, trying to conjure the dead and followed these directions, it would not do it. It wouldn't work. <laughs> <laughs> so you're, you're filling the kettle up with water, but you're not actually plugging it in. Exactly, right? I, you're building a circuit board and then you're not connecting it to any batteries. It's just there. <laughs> That is a very responsible game design. And I think about responsible game design a lot and it it doesn't come up a ton. But yeah, I mean, the things that we do, the reason games working means that they have power. So we need to be conscious of that. Absolutely. And, you know, everybody that you ever talk to has some weird story of something that happened to them with a Ouija board, right? Like... Like there, there's. It's like the the number of Ouija board based accidents in in this world. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I have never had a wilder time online than one time I was getting rid of a bunch of stuff, and I went to sell a bunch of just like games and, and related stuff that I had on Facebook Marketplace, and one of them was a Ouija board, 
And it was just like tossed in there. And like, and I have, I have spent some time online. I'm a woman with opinions on the internet. Like, but holy, like I had never seen such response from people and all over the place, both from like, this is stupid. This is nothing to people being like, burn it to people being like, no, you specifically must not burn it. You have to get rid of it in this other way. Yeah. It's, it's fun. It's exciting. (laughs) That's, that's amazing. I love that. Yeah, people get really, really intense about Ouija boards. And I, and I, so I am trying, like, it's sort of like, okay, if you, if you don't believe in magic, then you're like, whatever, it's a game, fine. Um, If you have like a medium amount of knowledge, you might be like, oh no, this game is dangerous and might actually bring back the dead. But then if you have an excessive knowledge of magic, you realize that it wouldn't work. <laughs> so, <laughs> I mean, maybe no, no one's coming at you, you know, saying this is dangerous. No. Maybe people are looking at this and being like, oh goodness, I see certain certain elements are missing here. What foolishness. <laughs> That's totally. how magic people talk. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They're all like, tut, tut, tut. Lucian has left, left an important spice out of this family recipe what a fool (laughs) what a fool (laughs) clearly this would not raise the dead (laughs) i hope that's what they're doing because i would enjoy all of my players talking like that that would be great i'm sure we can do that i mean actually that's like one percent removed from how larpers talk so like (laughs) it's not not a big jump (laughs) you know the other thing that i notice so much in your games besides uh you know religion, rituals, physical components, that kind of creativity, is puns? Yes. Like, you just full-on publish games with names like Same Bat Time, Same Bat Mitzvah, (laughs) or If I Were a Lich Man. Uh Um, I mean, Visigoth versus Molgoths is going to be, like, a big major release. Like, I'm super excited for this. People are stoked. It's going to be a big thing. And you're just – it has that name. It seems like like someone would, like, tweet that as, like, a funny – idea for a game that they would never make but you're like no i'm gonna do it I am, i'm actually just gonna make that full-on thing i am committed i am committed to the puns and <laughs> visigoths versus Molgoths is full of even more puns in the game um there's a there's a store there's a um demonic bed and bath store called hail satin <laughs> <laughs> there there is a um salon for humans and pets called gerbil essences. Oh my god. <laughs> um there is a like medieval weapons store called Ace of Mace. <laughs> <laughs> that's great cuz that's also very 90s, which is why Yeah, exa- exactly. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so there's there's a lot of stuff like that. Um and yeah, I mean, I grew up in a family where my grandpa collected joke books and they were everywhere, right? It's just like in my entire being. Like I cannot imagine creating without without using puns. Yeah. I mean, humor is very powerful. And I think I've spoken to so many people who say that it's so rare to see humor done well in a game or to see a funny game that actually plays out as funny. Uh, you know, even, I don't know. I feel like the humor classic is like paranoia. And then not like a ton after that, but I feel like that's changing so much now. And I love that when you're coming up with games that are in themselves, elaborate jokes and bits, how, how are you able to elicit that kind of humor from your players? Like, are you amusing them with the text 
or are you building things in there for them to make funny stuff? It's a little bit of both. Um, so I definitely with with Visigoths versus Molgoths, there's, um, you know, there are a lot of jokes in the text itself. There are funny um, names of stores. There are like funny descriptions of the NPCs and like suggestions of funny things that you can do with them. Um, and some of the situations that are in like the random roll tables are, are inherently funny. But then there are some mechanics in the game that are designed to um, help the players come up with their own funny situations. So for example, um, one of the central systems in the game uh, revolves around something called embarrassing traits. Um, (laughs) So um, so you are playing teenagers, right? You're either a 16-year-old Molgoth who is in 1996 Los Angeles area, right? Or you are a 16-year-old Visigoth, the conquerors of ancient Rome, who has been transported via time travel into a 1996 mall. And you either way you you at the beginning of the game you get um embarrassing traits and there's a list of embarrassing traits that visigoths might have and a list of embarrassing traits that molgoths might have for example um perhaps you have overprotective parents right who are constantly showing up or like beeping you on your beeper you if you're a visigoth perhaps you're allergic to metal right but you're wearing all this metal armor right or if you're a visigoth perhaps um, you wish you were Roman, right? So you you start like speaking in Pig Latin and like you know talking about the Forum or whatever, right? Maybe if you're a Molgoth, um, you are secretly a prep student, right? You're actually like you have your your expensive graphing calculator and your cheerleading uniform like in your bag, but you're all gothed out at the mall um, and nobody knows. So like you get these embarrassing traits that then. Um, you can reveal them, um, like you like do something to play up your own embarrassing trait or like quote unquote accidentally reveal them mm-hmm. to give other players um, bonuses by making them look cool in comparison. Oh, that's so sweet. <laughs> so it's actually very kind hearted, right? <laughs> like you, you embarrass yourself to like make other people shine or to, to distract from something someone else is trying to do or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, so you're d- very much encouraged to like, do these funny things to embarrass yourself um, mm-hmm. in these scenes. Um, and, you know, they play out in, in a whole elaborate variety of ways, depending on like what store you're in, what clerks are nearby and what's going on, etc. cetera. So, um, so yeah, there's a combination of like things that are, are in the game text itself and then mechanics that are, are given to you that will allow you to do something funny. Right. Yeah. And it's, I feel like that's something that people can draw on really easily because if you have been 16, you have been embarrassed. You are familiar with what makes that happen. Totally. And there are also um, suggestions in the text for how you might play up each embarrassing trait. So if you're like, you know, you're, you get sort of blank brain, um, you can just rely on the suggestions. Oh my gosh. I feel like just lists of things to pick from is like, I don't know where contemporary game design would be without it. I I also love that that is something that unites the Visigoths and the Molgoths, because at the end of the day, they're both teenagers, so they can both experience embarrassment. Um, That's very wholesome in a way. It is very wholesome. There are are a few other things too, like um, the 
the fact that they're both outsiders, right? So if if you're a mall goth in 1996, like most of the people in the mall and the people at your school regard you as kind of an outsider, right? Because the the sort of teen goths were considered sort of weird and other. Um, and you're also not old enough and not cool enough to be a true goth. Yeah, you can't go to the goth clubs and... Yeah. Yep. Yep, you can't go to the goth clubs. All the older goths think you're a poser because you buy your clothes at Hot Topic or whatever, right? So you you're both rejected and and othered by your by like the mainstream culture and by the the goth culture. So they're totally outsiders. And then the Visigoths obviously are outsiders because they've been transported from a totally different time and place into this modern mall. Yay! Also like relatable teen feelings. Totally. Oh, you said something about this game the other day that really, really interested me. You cited as one of the big inspirations for the game, the digital RPG Earthbound. Yes. Tell me more. Tell me how Earthbound is is getting its tendrils in there. Yeah. So I would actually say that Earthbound is in some ways the biggest influence on this game. One of the things I really love about Earthbound um, is that um, you are both genuinely trying to accomplish your goals, right? You're you're on a real quest to do a bunch of things, but there's all of these like jokey pop culture sort of things that pop up as you're doing so. So like you are in fact you know trying to solve mysteries in these different towns, but then like you'll suddenly be attacked by like. A, a weird hippie right or like by like a by like a crazed golfer right uh, <laughs> and that's really fun right because you you still have the mechanics of like it's a it's a role-playing game right you are a video game role-playing game where you have like hit points and you're like you do during doing turn-based combat and it's all like mechanically the same as you know playing Final Fantasy, the original one, right? But instead of battling like a, a, a serious dragon, you're battling a, you know, crazed golfer. Um, and um, I tried to port that sort of feeling over into Visigoths versus Malgoths, where it's like, you know, a lot of the mechanics of the game are will be familiar to players of other role-playing games. Um, a lot of, a lot of the um, things happen through roll-offs, which is pretty intuitive. But you know, what you're actually battling against may be an entire men's volleyball team, right? (laughs) (laughs) That does, that does feel very earthbound. And earthbound, I think is also a game where it, it just has this underlying thesis that like the world of adults is unfriendly, that, that adults do not have your best interests at heart and are just kind of inherently corrupt and I love that. I love that. That's so good. It is really good. I love that too. Um, oh, and another thing I really drew from Earthbound is um, is just the joy of like going shopping in Earthbound, which is something I always really love where like you get to a new town in Earthbound and you're like, oh, I wonder what all of the foods are in the new shops. Because like they're always really idiosyncratic. You're like, oh, cool. This shop has like this weird kind of popsicle that heals you like 27 HP. <laughs> Um, and that's just something I really enjoyed about the game. So I tried to, um, you know, make all of my stores in the mall have like fun, weird items that will just like surprise and delight you as you find them. Oh, so there's like, 
it, I mean, I guess this makes sense because it takes place in a mall, but there's like actual shopping, like mechanical shopping as part of the game. Oh, oh yeah. You, you have a certain amount of money at the beginning of the game. You may earn more through quests. You may um, steal things. You may buy things. You can shoplift. There's items in the stores. There's clerks in the stores. Um, there's a, it's like a fully, it's a fully built setting. Um, like the way that, um, you know, like a, a Dungeons and Dragons module would have like a, all the information about all of the shops in the town. Um, there's like 17 stores with um, like NPCs who are fully described and um, items you can buy there and activities you can do there. That's so exciting. Thank you for giving the people what they want. I am so, ha- so happy to do so. Because <laughs> <laughs> that's what people do when they play Dungeons and Dragons. It's like, okay, fight, 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 fine, 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 whatever. Uh, can we please get to the next town so I can spend three sessions shopping? <laughs> yes. If you would like to go shopping, please play Visigoths versus Malgoths because there's so much shopping. And, um, you know, you can try to shoplift. You, you might not succeed. You might get into a fight. But, you know, there's all kinds of shopping and there's other activities to do in stores as well. Like there's an arcade, you can play skee-ball, um, there's, you know, you can go get a makeover in gerbil essences. <laughs> <laughs> um, so there's, there's all kinds of stuff. Yeah, it is very wholesome. Something else that uh, you mentioned a while ago about, about this game was the assumption that a lot of playtesters have had that it is based on Apocalypse World. Yeah, and it's not. It's not at all based on Apocalypse World. But how do you how do you manage that? Like, I mean, if that's just the expectation that people bring, then that's what happens. But like, how do you respond to that mechanically? Yeah, um, I mean, one thing I tried to do was like I put in several in several parts of the game book. I've sort of emphasized like, hey, um, here are some here's some advice for like if you are coming to this game from Dungeons and Dragons. And then here's some advice if you're coming to this game from uh, Powered by the Apocalypse type games. Um, and like a few sentences about how they're how they're different and things you might want to do differently. Um, so I'm hoping people read that. And the the game rules themselves, it's, it's like a one-page spread or maybe a two-page spread. We're still in layout. Um, but it's a one or two-page spread um, that sort of summarizes the... Um, the basic mechanics of the game, which are which are pretty um, streamlined, and I'm hoping that people will follow the directions and read those out loud before playing. So I, I wanted to take a cue from um, games like Fall of Magic or um, Ten Candles or other games that I've seen where they they tell you in the instructions, "Hey, read this page of things before you start." So I'm hoping that people will actually read the instructions and then play the game as written, but. As always, if people instead do something else and they have fun, I hope they enjoy it. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's the feeling of like, oh, that's that's not it at all. But um and okay. All right. Have a good time. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like I I mean I I feel like I am a you know, an easygoing enough person about my own creative work that I feel comfortable with the fact that you know, some people are going to pick it up and do something very different with it than what I intended. And as long as they're not being mean or cruel to anyone and, and are having a nice time, then I, you know, Godspeed, please enjoy this thing I've made in whatever way you decide. <laughs> <laughs> breathe in, breathe out. Yeah. <laughs>
Yeah, I can, you know, I cannot, I cannot guarantee that it will work if you play it differently than I wrote it, but I, I'm not going to stop. <laughs> <laughs> okay, shifting into a different thing that I am very, very, very excited to ask you about. You and uh, Sharang Biswas, who we talked, uh, you mentioned earlier, are working on publishing an erotic art games anthology. And I just, I want to know the origin story. How did you and Sharang end up with a grant from the Effing Foundation to make an anthology of live action games and it's being published by Pelgrane? Like, like what happened? I'm so excited. Yeah, this, um, I'm also very excited and Sharang's also very excited. Um, this was a, a kind of shot in the dark, random opportunity. Um, we, um, I, maybe a year ago, I had started um, working on a game called In the Clefts of the Rock, which is a, it's an erotic game. It is an explicitly sexual game. And in this game, you are um, imagining yourself and the other players to be these alien landscapes. So like your body is this otherworldly planetary landscape and the different parts of your body are different geographic features of this landscape that you are describing. Um, and throughout the course of the game, there there's a set of um, several layers of consent mechanics and um, negotiation mechanics um, that eventually allow you to be um, touching other people's bodies um, while together you are describing the fictional landscapes of these places. Um, so the idea is that you're not ever referring to body parts as, um, sh you know, shoulders or genitals or any of these things, but instead as volcanoes and grasslands and craters and all of those things. Um, so it's a surrealist game um, about imagining bodies to be something else. Um, so I, I had been working on this game and I talked to Sharang about it because we're, um, we're good friends and we talk a lot about game design. And he found out that there was a grant proposal opportunity open from the Effing Foundation, which is um, an organization that um, gives art grants to people who are doing um, artwork around um, sex positivity and consent and education. And he said, you know, I would really like to maybe work with you on, uh, maybe we could put together an anthology. You know, I know you're working on this game and you've made an anthology before because um, I had worked on the um, UNI two-player role-playing game anthology. Um, and, you know, he and I together, you know, know a lot of people that we could reach out and talk to about it. Um, and so we were like, yeah, that maybe, maybe we should apply for this. Um, you know, he had a couple of ideas of games he might like to write. Um, so we went through their grant proposal process, um, and wrote this whole grant up and came up with this concept. Um, and lo and behold, we got the grant. So we were like, cool, now we have an art grant, <laughs> you know, it was like, surprise, you have an art grant. So, you know, then we, um, we started reaching out to, um, people we knew who might like to publish it um, and ended up making an arrangement with Pelgrane. So we're still like right now we're in, um, there was a first round of, um, of open submissions and we got a whole bunch of submissions and together Sharang and I and Pelgrane and Effing Foundation 
sort of collaborating, narrowed it down to um, 12 finalists for six spots. So we're now um, waiting for those 12 finalists to write full games um, after their proposals so that we can decide uh, which ones we're going to end up um, publishing in the anthology. Oh my gosh, what, like, uh, I mean, okay, f- full disclosure audience, I am submitting a game. So like, you know, I don't want to pry too much into like the process or whatever, but I I imagine you must be getting some extremely interesting ideas. I mean, have you been like very surprised by a lot of what you're getting? Um, yeah, I mean, everything is kind of a surprise because you never know what kind of games you're going to get when you're like, please send us erotic art games, <laughs> <laughs> right? It's like, you know, all we really said was like, they have to be, bet- you know, th- the proposal has to answer the following questions about like, it's your approach to um, sexuality in the game, like your approach to mechanics, like, you know, and, and you know, some different questions and like, you know, thematic stuff. But like, we were pretty open as to what you could submit, right? It had to be, you know, something that affirms the the values of the foundation that's supporting the, the project. Um, but other than that, we're like, yeah, you know, it has to be loosely understood a role-playing game. So like a LARP or a free form or a tabletop role-playing game, like it has to have some kind of narrative component and it has to be playable, not just conceptual. So it has to be like something that in fact people could actually play. Right. Which is a funny thing to have to specify, but in the circles we run in. <laughs> yes. You know, because as soon as you say art game, it's like you can get some like totally abstract conceptual art game, which is interesting, but not what we're going for um, with this project. Um, so we wanted playable games. And so that's really all we said. And we were like, you know, send us what you've got and we'll see what we get. And so we got a really wide variety of really interesting things. Um, and it was actually difficult to to narrow down. Um, there were a lot of good proposals. Yeah, I bet. That's super, super exciting. Um, what's the timeline on it? When are people going to be able to see this thing and support it? So we are probably looking at a sometime in 2020 publication. We're going to have the final games in our hands, hopefully in the fall. So I think like mid-October, late October, the final versions of, of the final six um, and then there's, you know, layout and all of the things that go into publishing. So we're we're aiming for some point in 2020. We're not sure exactly when yet. Cool, cool. So you you have worked on an anthology before. You put together the two-player game anthology, you and I. I'm very curious about lessons from that, which was, I, I don't know how long you've been gaming and making games, but I feel like around the time that that was being made was the first time that I saw, started seeing your name cropping up in a lot of places. So I, I don't know if that was like a pretty early project for you. So I'm curious about the lessons from putting together that anthology. What are you keeping in mind as you're now moving into um, to this new anthology? Well, it's an interesting question because the that anthology had a very different process of coming together. Um, so the you and I anthology um, really can be thought of as sort of a um, like a collaborative community project um, more than a um, like a curated anthology. It was more like um, a few people I knew 
got together and contacted all of the game designers that they could think of who might be interested in contributing. And we made a Google Plus group and we were like, hey, does anybody want to like submit a game to this anthology? We're just going to make it all together. Like we don't have a budget right at all and you know somebody who is part of this team will volunteer layout and somebody will volunteer their publishing abilities and we're just gonna like make a community project together and then we'll just split the the proceeds if it makes any money and we really did it like you know by via google plus rip So, so the you and I project really was a like, hey, like us and our extended circle of friends that we know who want to make games. Like, what if we made a, a, an anthology of two player games and just like see what we can make together? Um, and anybody who wanted to contribute to it, um, we accepted the game and we all worked together and we made this thing and you know, we finished it and it took a really long time because it was a community project, but everybody pitched in and helped. And it was like that kind of a, um, a spirit of things. Whereas the erotic art games anthology, um, a couple of things about our approach were different. One is that we really wanted to, um, not only did we want to, but the, the Effing Foundation required that we focus um, more uh, deliberately on diversity and inclusivity of writers and designers. So we were really going out of our way to do um, outreach to designers who are people of color, to designers who are um of a variety of genders to um, designers who are from a variety of different backgrounds, right? So we um, we were much more deliberate about um, not only sort of saying like, "Hey, who do we know?" but also saying like, um, "Like who in our very extended network of people in the game design world do we know who might be able to bring different perspectives to this project?" Um, so we were, we were much more deliberate about, um, doing that kind of outreach. Um, and we were also, um, just curating, right? We were, we were, we have a grant, right? So we have an art grant, um, it is for a certain amount of money and we wanted to make sure all the designers got paid a certain amount of money. And so we had a, we have a finite number of, um, games that we can publish in the game book, right? Also because of, um, the cost of layout and copy editing and all of those things, right? So, um, so by the by nature of the fact that we're dealing with a um, both an art grant, which is a finite amount of money, and a publisher who have costs and all of these things, um, we had to limit it to um, a total of eight games. So it's my game, Sharang's game, and six other games. Um, so that has put us into a whole other role of curator, right? Where we are. Um, receiving lots of possible games, and now we're evaluating those games um, for a variety of criteria, and also trying to have a good mix of of games overall in the anthology. Um, so the short answer is um, the process has ended up being very different. Man, it's I imagine you must be very very glad to be working as a team on this, like not alone and not as a committee. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I will second that wholeheartedly. Um, two is a wonderful number of people to be at the core of this project. <laughs> yeah. And 
I mean, in terms of the involvement from the foundation, I guess, are they just like, here's, here's a cash, go nuts. Like how involved are they? They, um, we are in communication with them um, about different stages in the project and they do have some say in, um, in the final uh, decisions that we make about games and submissions because um, they want to make sure that um, all of the games that we decide to publish are in sort of general accordance with the, um, the values of the foundation, which include things like, um, you know, diversity and inclusivity, sex positivity, consent, um, all of these things. So, so they have some sort of philosophical and ethical oversight, you know, to make sure that that is the case. And also they have, as part of the requirements for um, receiving the grant, um, requirements around the number of people from different communities who are participating in the project. So making sure that it's, you know, not an all white cis male project. Yeah, naturally. Yeah. Um, Which is something we would want to do anyway, but um, we're definitely in conversation with them about that. Yeah. Yeah. I think uh, when, when people are working on projects like this, like whether it's who do I invite as a guest to my con or who do I include in my anthology or, you know, who do I, I, uh, you know, work with on this bigger project. I think a lot of people want a very diverse group, but people express that it's very difficult. Has it been your experience that it is hard to kind of to hit your diversity goals, or or do you have advice for people who are trying to do the same thing? For this project, actually, I don't think we found it to be very difficult. In fact, I would say it has not been difficult. And I think that part of that is that I guess. Between Sharang and me, we had, you know, we're fortunate enough to know a lot of people in game design. Um, He's been a creator in this space um, longer than I have. He's been, you know, maybe four or five years has been a creator in this space and has been a a GM for much longer. I've been playing games forever, but um, I'm a relative newcomer to the design space. Um, But still um, sort of through a combination of um, Facebook and Twitter and conventions and stuff, I have met a lot of people. Um, I'm kind of an extreme extrovert. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So um, I've ended up making a lot of friends. So between the two of us, we did already know a enormous amount of queer LGBTQ, et cetera, game designers, enormous amount. And then definitely a fair number of designers who are people of color and a lot of the other requirements we found pretty easy to meet. But I think that that is perhaps specifically because like between me and Sharang, like I am a trans and gay and Jewish and Sharang is South Asian and gay and an immigrant. Um, So like we just kind of, like our our extended communities um, started out being a little bit less um, homogenous, maybe than some people who might be trying to do similar things. So part of that was just sort of the good fortune of of already having um, a lot of people in mind that we could reach out to. And then I think another part of it was really deliberately deciding um, or not like when we first announced this. We are going to specifically reach out to designers from a lot of the more marginalized communities 
as opposed to relying on an open call to draw them. Um, because a lot of times um, people from marginalized communities feel more apprehensive about submitting to projects because they might encounter um, prejudice. So we wanted to specifically be like, hey, you like 30 people, we are interested in, in having a submission from you uh, of a game or of a proposal. And so that actually turned out to be very effective. I think that um, that actually, you know, reaching out both to people that we knew and to people that we had like some remote industry contact with, right? Like somebody who's like a Twitter friend of a Twitter friend, you know, and being like, hey, we're doing this anthology, like, would you be interested in submitting? Um, that did, in fact, I think, result in getting us more submissions from from artists from, from marginalized groups. So I would recommend that as a strategy. Definitely. And I think there is a piece of advice in what you were saying earlier about just kind of already having a network of, of really diverse and qualified folks, which is if you're finding it really hard to find people for your project who are, who have different perspectives than you and different experiences, like, you need to start working on that before it's time to put your project together. Like there's, yeah, look at your network. On the other, other hand, when I was, when I was doing outreach for, um, for writers and artists for, um, Visigoths versus Molgoths, cause I needed, um, a variety of things, um, uh, done for that. Like I was not sure which artist I wanted to use for my map, right. For cartography. Um, and I was like, you know, as I'm like going through all of the people I know who do maps, like these are all straight white men. There must be some map makers who are not straight white men. And like, probably they're not getting any attention because um, I can't find them. So I went on a deep dive. I went into, I ended up going into one of the black women artists hashtags. Like I went on like you know, I went in one of those like Twitter labyrinths where you're like, I wonder how I can find the hashtag I want. And you like spend a really long time deep diving hashtags. But I ended up um, finding uh, the artist I ended up going with, Olivia Fields, who's really good through like doing a, <laughs> a like deep dive on a hashtag. So you can also just do that, right? You can go on a deep dig on a, ha- dig on a hashtag and try to find what hashtag people who are less represented in in game or art stuff are using that week and then go to all of their Twitter bios and see which ones of them are um, currently taking commissions and then just contact them. Yes. Yeah. You know, Twitter, the bad website is sometimes good. Yeah. <laughs> like, sometimes it's actually very good. Yeah. You can just use it as like a weird Rolodex and, <laughs> and find somebody. <laughs> So I I think that's also a good strategy. You know, if you're finding that like when you go looking for somebody to do whatever for your game project and it, and like every single person who pops up is a straight white cis man, like you might think to yourself, Hey, you know, like all of these people are probably getting a lot of jobs. Um, I wonder if like there are other people who might not be getting opportunities or popping up on this search who I could like, you know, give some work to who would be very talented and, you know, then you're bringing more people um, into the community. That's good advice too. I think that's a, I think that's a pretty solid note to end on. I'm very, very excited about the anthology, whether or not my stuff is in it. I am really stoked. I'm like equally stoked. 
Um, can I give a, give a quick uh, Kickstarter plug? Yes, I was just about to invite you to plug away. Go for it. Thank you very much. So um, the Kickstarter for Visigoths versus Malgoths will be launching on October 1st at noon and will be going until midnight of Halloween. That is Eastern Standard Time. So noon EST on October 1st to midnight of Halloween. And the short pitch of the game, Visigoths versus Malgoths, is a tabletop role-playing game and dating sim about the conflicts and romances among the warriors who sacked ancient Rome and 20th century spooky teens set in a shopping mall in a Los Angeles suburb in 1996. There are a lot of bisexuals. (laughs) (laughs) So um, please, uh, if you enjoyed this and if you enjoy things like this, please go ahead and um, back that on Kickstarter when it launches in October. And so go to the show notes. You can follow me on Twitter. It's O-Theogony, O-H underscore T-H-E-O-G-O-N-Y for updates. Um, And there'll probably be a note to the um, Physigoths versus Malgoths mailing list if you would like to sign up for it in case you forget. Yes, all of that will be there. I'm making note of it right now. That's super exciting. So if people want to follow you, they can find you on Twitter. Um, I'll have links to that mailing list that people can get on the hype train for. And uh, yeah, oh my gosh. I'm uh, Yeah, this was a lovely interview. Thank you so much for coming on. This was a delight for me as well. And thank you so much for having me. Also, I love that your Twitter handle is the combination of, your, of two great loves of like kitschy religious shit and punnery. <laughs> Thank you so much. I, it always makes me really happy when people like notice my stupid pun in my, in my <laughs> Twitter handle. <laughs> again to Lucian for joining me and as always thank you for listening if you have thoughts on today's show you can email me that's backstorypodcast at gmail.com or you can follow me on twitter at backstorycast backstory is hosted by me alex roberts and produced by the talented alex sisk we're part of the one shot podcast network and you can go to oneshotpodcast.com to find more great shows like total party kill total party kill is a weekly live twitch stream where john patrick cohen eddie clinker and james dugan play through cephalofair games gloomhaven join them in the stream to play along through the action and interact with a constantly changing cast of characters and special guests or watch them after the fact on the one shot youtube channel tpk airs thursday at 7 p.m. Central at twitch.tv slash one-shot-rpg. Music for Backstory is provided by Ujiko. The track is called Thinking of You, and you can hear more by searching U-J-I-C-O on YouTube, Spotify, SoundCloud, or wherever else you get your chill beats. Talk to you later, friends. Thank you.